Greg, do you ever find pieces that have broken off of something? A miscellaneous item in your home? And you don't know what it is? Oh, like yeah, sometimes all I the find time. screws mm-hmm. that have fallen out of a, a chair, but I don't know where to put it back. Typically, to find a screw under a crib or something like that's not good. Yesterday, I find in around 9.45 in the morning yesterday, I find this little black piece of plastic. This little looks like a it's a tab kind of thing. And I thought it came off of my chair because it was underneath the chair. Sure. And I just, at two minutes ago, I pick up my <laughs> headphones and I see yes. that one of the, there's a piece that's loose. And I yes. look, so this is on the right headphone. Mm-hmm. And I look on the left headphone and I see that it has a matching piece. There you go. So Mystery I got all excited, but I can't, it's broken. I can't. Well, there's a reason back. why you found it on the floor. Because it's broken. Because it's broken. Good morning, Jerry. How are Good you morning. this morning? Good, thanks. Right on Thursday morning. It's not quite Friday, but we can. Almost see it from here. It's a cold start to your morning. Brett and I were out in the parking lot. We were just wandering around the parking lot this morning. Not As exactly you do. sure. Yeah, we're <laughs> apt to do that at 445. Wandering around the parking lot at Polar Park. And it was cold. It's very cold. So hopefully you had your car plugged in. If you have command start, you'll want to use it this morning. Get your car nice and toasty before you jump into it. And before we move on, uh, Jackie and I... Two nights in a row, I hate to admit this, we were out for dinner again last night. Why is that bad? Because we have been doing really well on staying home, but it's just been a hectic week. Anyway, we went more for a snack than for dinner. We bumped into our friends Cal and Di at our favorite spot out in uh, East St. Paul and Birds Hill, actually, at Jonesy's. And we got to talking, and anyway, they had a friend over the other night. He's a truck driver. And apparently he's a huge fan of the show. Diane and Cal do not like our show, but their friend Shane <laughs> loves our show. He's a truck driver. And I said, we have a huge number of truck drivers out there that do listen very loyally, that interact with us. And uh, you guys all know who you are. Uh, but I wanted to give a shout out to Shane this morning and thank everyone who's out driving truck, moving snow, moving freight, doing whatever you're doing, moving whatever you're moving so that the economy keeps rolling. So uh, shout out to all the truck drivers out there and a extra tip of the cap to Shane, who's listening this morning. And as far as that cold goes, Greg, maybe there's something, you pointed out something that could help to warm you up a little bit. I did? It's official that Elon Musk is now in the weapons business. <laughs> what is the deal with this thing? You want to hear the full story? <laughs> yes, please. This is from Global. The car and space genius is now selling flamethrowers, <laughs> and they're going fast. Now, we're going to play the audio here, but we want to direct you to cjob.com and globalnews.ca. We can just, if you want to see the link, uh, email brett at cjob.com or gmac at cjob.com because you want to see the video that goes with this. Now, Musk insists... These flamethrowers are more suitable for roasting nuts than for anything else. Mm. Global's Mike Drolet explains. Elon Musk is known as a visionary. He's the main driver in the electric car market and is trying to privatize the space industry. Ignition, liftoff. Recently, he announced he was fed up with traffic, so he's working on developing Hyperloop transportation tunnels, which he's funding himself. To offset a fraction of the cost, he began selling hats last year. And he joked if he sold 50,000, he'd develop a flamethrower. Turns out he was serious. Say hello to my little friend, he wrote online, and the internet went nuts. Still, there was doubt. After all, he tweeted about a zombie apocalypse and then added it was a super terrible idea. Don't buy one. But on his website, there it was, selling for $500 U.S., I'm going to buy a flamethrower. That's kind of stupid. But this guy went through the motions, laughing at the thought of owning one, until he uh, did. I was legit charged already. Now, flamethrowers are best known from, you know, war. Nice little toy if you know how to play with it. In the YouTube era, there's no shortage of videos of homemade devices. Okay. Oh, oh! So, are they legal? Well, in the U.S., only Maryland and California have restrictions in place. And in Canada, the RCMP tells Global News they're not classified as a weapon because they're not technically a projectile weapon like a gun, a hole in the criminal code which will no doubt be addressed. For now, Musk has a hot new product on his hands. He's sold three quarters of his 20,000 unit stock in 48 hours. Mike Drolet, Global News, Toronto. Okay, so it doesn't shoot bullets, but it does shoot flames about 10 feet out and... 
it's it, it's horrifying. Like it's amusing. You heard him say, "It seems stupid, but I'm going to do it." And there's a tweet on the Global News story from a guy named Marcus Brownlee at MKBHD. He's actually one of the uh, preeminent technology uh, commentators on YouTube. And he says, I mean, sure, I'll pre-order. This feels illegal, though. (laughs) You know what? Elon Musk is a brilliant man. I wish he could build his Teslas as fast as he's building this flamethrower, 20,000. I don't know how, I'm going to have to look up in the break how many Teslas they built last year. I don't think it's 20,000. Yeah. You know, he might want to step up production on the world changing car that he's bringing to the market versus, I don't know, why is he distracted with something like this? And for 500 bucks? Why? Like, like what's the, what, what are you supposed to do with it? I don't know. I just, I don't, <laughs> there, you know, this is going to be used, they're going to be used for bad bad things. Was this supposed to be like a handheld barbecue? Like, uh, is he missing some sort of marketing opportunity here? I don't know. I think there's a guy on YouTube, is it Uncle Dave? Where he just, he he used, typically lights things on fire with gasoline. So oh, he could have some yeah. fun with him. Uh, is that his name? Uh, I've seen his videos and very quickly stopped watching his videos because it's really over the top and I'm horrified that my kids will discover it in my browsing history. So uh, (laughs) I clear my browsing history when I come across something like that because I don't want my kids to come across it accidentally. It's not Uncle Dave. It's not? Who is it? I can't remember. I looked at Uncle Dave. So here we have two things to do over the weather break. We have to look up how many Teslas were built last year Mm -hmm. and uh, who's the guy that has that uh, crazy YouTube page where he Light stuff on fire. Uncle Rob. There it is, Uncle Rob. Okay, so only I have homework now. <laughs> How many Teslas built last year? Six, Very good. Maxing McGarry in the morning. Uh, but I'm finishing a question from a, uh, a young, young boy who asked a question. Please have a little respect for him. Have a little respect for the young boy who just asked a question, please. Thank you. How about I come to you next, ma'am? Ma'am, I will come to you. Ma'am, I will come to you. Miss, excuse me. (laughs) That wasn't the only answer. Works when we actually chat. What? Yes. No, ma'am, I will give you the microphone. I'll give you the microphone. Okay. Thank you. Sorry. Thank you. No, wait. Sorry. He handles that incredibly well. Anyway. The re- respect, respect works both ways. Thank you. No, 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 guys, guys, guys. It's okay. It's okay. No, 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 no. Let her be. 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 Thank you. Thank you. I have heard you. Thank you. Let 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 her be. Let it be. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't the only heckler during Justin Trudeau's Trudeau's town hall in Winnipeg last night. When a man asked a question about Russian interference. In elections around the world when he was also interrupted by a heckler in the crowd shouting profanities. Here's some of that. Uh, My question for you is a foreign policy question regarding Russia. Uh, Vladimir Putin and his uh, cronies in the Kremlin in Russia, they're uh, openly interfering in people's elections. It's been done in the UK, France, Germany. Uh, it's been done most notably in the United States. Uh, so my question for you is, do you think you're doing enough with sanctions? Okay, sir, excuse me. Excuse me. No, no. Excuse me, sir. Someone, no, 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 no. In this place, we have respect. In this place, we have respect. And, and I, can, I can take people yelling at me, but you don't get to yell at another questioner. Sir? Sir, sir you can... You can you can sit down and listen to this gentleman's question, please. Thank you. Um, so obviously there has been an increase in cyber attacks, in um, behavior by uh, Russia specifically uh, on uh, trying to influence the outcome of elections around the world. Uh, and this is something that we don't accept. Uh, I have put uh, our democratic institutions minister uh, on uh, looking at ways we can strengthen the Elections Canada Act to protect us not just from uh, foreign interference but from the effect of fake news uh, and how uh, we are now sharing things on social media that spread like wildfire but don't necessarily have any grounding in truth but that do influence 
our perspective and our views of, uh, of who to vote for or what to vote for. I think the integrity of our election system is something that we all uh, treasure and value in countries that are democratic and open and allow uh, for free public discourse. And yes, even boorish behavior in our democratic discourse is welcome, um, is, is something that we should be protecting. Uh, is something that we should uh, understand is a value uh, to our system. So getting that line right of giving citizens the tools to be able to understand where information is coming from uh, and uh, analyze it critically and understand it, while at the same time protecting the integrity of our election system from outside interference, uh, whether it be Russian or from anywhere else, we need to make sure we're keeping up with the times and the tools. We've seen uh, challenges in other places, and we're going to try and do everything we can to make sure that Canada is not uh, affected by foreign interference in our free and fair elections. Thank you very much for your question, sir. You can see the video at cjob.com. Hey, we were talking about Elon Musk's flamethrower. Yes. Yeah, they sold... 20,000. Full of 20,000, the product. They've sold 17,000 in less than a week. Last year, Tesla produced 103,000 vehicles. Uh, about 103, 200. Did they say that? 103,200 vehicles. Oh, 100, over 100,000 vehicles. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they're, do they're doing okay on the cars, but, you know, could step up the production a tiny bit and not get distracted by a flamethrower that can only be used for evil. I'm if anybody has an idea on how to use a flamethrower for good, please text message us at 204-780-6868. We've been racking our brains. Sleal has weighed in on the flamethrower thing, and he says, he emailed me, Brett, at cjob.com, and he says, they are not flamethrowers. A flamethrower hurls burning fuel that clings to its target. Which, when you think about that, that, that's just really horrifying. This junk is just an overgrown propane torch. When he offers something that will throw flaming liquid fuel 30 to 50 feet away, then it will be a flamethrower. <laughs> Sleel, are you buying one of these? <laughs> Clearly not. He's waiting for the real deal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, this is crap. It only throws fire 10 feet. It's not good enough for me. <laughs> Somebody just text messaged ants. Just Ants with seven exclamation marks. Uh, yeah, you know what? There's a good idea. Hey, it's uh, Greg Mackling and Brett McGarry with you. If you'd like to reach out, gmac at cjob.com or brett at cjob.com. Seven companies, as Jeff Braun told you in Global News at 6.30. Seven companies have committed indictable offenses in a bread price-fixing scandal. This is according to the Competition Bureau. So to get more on this, we are joined by a professor in food distribution and policy at Dalhousie University, Sylvain Charlebois, joining us live this morning on 680 CJOB. Sylvain, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Well, we appreciate you taking some time with us and, and sharing this story that I think a lot of people were shocked but not surprised by. Is it possible to be both? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm puzzled by this story. So obviously I think like most Canadians in December, I was shocked to hear, uh, when, uh, when Galen Weston from Loblaw admitted that, uh, that his company and Weston, uh, were involved in, in a, a price fisting scheme. Now he also said at the time that this was an industry wide problem. Uh, what, uh, was, uh, published by the, Competition Bureau yesterday is that well they actually think the Bureau thinks that it is indeed an industry-wide problem. However, in the aftermath of of, of the accusation made by the Bureau, uh, both Sobeys and Metro, so the number two retailer and number three retailer in the country, denied all allegations. So it's 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 been a bizarre situation. There's lots of uh, fingers being pointed at different people. But the bottom line is that uh, I think everyone is starting to doubt what, what exactly is going on in the grocery business. Now, as far as cost is concerned, uh, what is it? There, we're looking at about 10 cents. Like this, for, for, the, for the average consumer, it ends up costing about 10 cents more per loaf, right? So if you actually break down uh, how much it may have cost a, an average family in Canada, 
if uh, if we say that indeed there was a cartel and there was some price fixing going on, both at the wholesale and retail level, and that's what uh, the bureau is saying, uh, we estimate that. Uh, between 2002 to 2015, the average Canadian family could have paid $350 more for bread over 14 years. Now, that might not seem like a lot for one family, but when you multiply that by however many people buy bread, I mean, I buy a loaf of bread at least once every two weeks, uh, and that's just one person, right? So that might cost me an extra, what, five bucks in a year? Yeah, well, for us, it's probably a couple loaves a week. So yeah. $3 is 150 bucks a yeah. year times 10. Like, we're talking about a considerable amount of money if we if we do the math. And, and some people uh, are doing the math here, Sylvain, and, and it's quite startling. So uh, I think you referenced this at the beginning, or at least alluded to it, in terms of the confidence of the overall, you know, industry. Are there concerns and should we be concerned that this is happening with other products? Well, that's the question that I think a lot of people are asking, and they have every right to ask that same question. You see, whenever whenever you see an oligopoly serving another oligopoly up the food chain, that's exactly what happened in the bread situation. It could happen elsewhere. It's not impossible. Uh, you think of da- dairy, you actually have marketing boards, you have one seller, uh, but you do have just a handful of processors and a handful of grocers once again. So you could actually see uh, that kind of scheme happening. The temptation is actually real. It's there. Uh, what really I don't understand is that Loblaw came forward with, uh, with a mea culpa on December 19th. It took 42 days before we heard from the Bureau. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Bureau is basically saying that seven companies are involved but still, a lot of companies, major companies, are still denying allegations. So I don't know where this is going to lead, but my guess is that for the next little while, uh, if they were talking to each other, I don't think they will anymore for, <laughs> for at least a little <laughs> while. Cause they, they, I feel a lot of hatred within, within the grocery business right now. Well, let's close on this. Uh, Loblaw spokesman Kevin Gross said Wednesday, the documents are unequivocal. And we have admitted our role. This is a quote, and you cannot price fix alone. So Loblaw's situation is different than others because they're vertically integrated. They actually own Weston, whereas Canada Bread is not owned by anybody else. So, of course, they're arguing that this is a, an industry-wide uh, problem, and the message coming out of the Bureau is uh, in sync with what they're claiming. But... It's very difficult to uh, to decide who to believe in this case. I'll be very honest with you guys. Uh, right now, I think all consumers should actually ask questions uh, as to how things are operating in the grocery business. Sylvain, actually, I just want to quickly ask you one more question before we let you go. And thank you very much for your time this morning, by the way. Why bread? Of all the things they could have focused on, why bread? Well, bread is uh, is a staple. Of course, we all need bread, and uh, and frankly, uh, demand is uh, is quite elastic. Uh, when's the last time you actually? I mean, for a while, uh, most families weren't even looking at at the price of bread. That's true. Just, if you need bread, you just buy it. Sure. Like I'm I'm going to be eating my toast this morning, and I'm not wondering how much I paid for it. <laughs> That's really why it was easy, I think, for the industry to collude. Yeah, and, and you know what? And we'll have to have you back because you mentioned the milk industry, and and I'm not sure if you're suggesting it's easier for them to price fix within the milk industry or the dairy industry, or less easy or more difficult based on the structure. Can you answer that in in a handful of words? <laughs> well, with in the, in dairy, you actually have a legal cartel, right? Right uh, between uh, between producers and processors. Now the rest up the food chain, it would be interesting to see exactly what the Bureau could come up with, but uh, I suspect that they'll start looking at other places in the grocery store. All right, Sylvain Chalabois, Professor in Food Distribution and Policy at Dalhousie University. Thank you so much, as always, for joining us today on 680 CJOB. All right, bye-bye. Apparently, uh, fear of the stay puffed 
Marshmallow Man from Ghostbusters is high on a lot of people's list <laughs> and a reason why they might want to have a flamethrower at their disposal because we've had three people suggest, including one with a giant picture that just says, lest we forget. We were asking for reasons as to why any of us would need to have a flamethrower at our disposal. There are industrial reasons, certainly, but in terms to have it in your personal arsenal and just kind of keep it in the shed. Start a campfire real quick. People are actually coming up with some good ideas. Keep them coming at 780-6868. We'll get to them throughout the morning. Brett? In the meantime, right now we want to have coffee and talk about hecklers. This has to do with the town hall yesterday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau at the University of Manitoba, Max Bell Center. And, of course, he was visited by hecklers, as always happens when he does these town halls. And we wanted to have a chat about that. Does that is that conducive to healthy conversation? Does it help anything? I mean, I know it helps. Trudeau loves the hecklers, I think. Is it is that incorrect to say? I, I mean, like he it. doesn't love them, but he, I think he, he really rises up when the hecklers come out. I don't think those town halls would be half as uh, important in the news run as they are without those hecklers. I think they would be a sidebar and the hecklers and the way he handles them, quite frankly, Mm -hmm. I think is as big a news and as entertaining to most people as the actual content of the questions and what a message the hecklers are trying to get out. So we have a packed round table. Tristan Field-Jones is here. Kelly Moore behind the glass. Jerry and Jeff Braun. And on the phone, Kathy Kennedy, a.k.a. KK. And KK, why don't we start with you? What do you think uh, of the notion of you know, you've got people trying to have uh, a civilized conversation, but then you've got these trolls, these hecklers that try to jump in. Does that help anything? Well, I mean, it's it's a, a version of mouth flame throwing, is it not? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, it is. There's a great way of putting it. <laughs> Verbal um, flame throwing. But, but you know what? Hey, look, uh, these people are passionate, and a lot of times. Um, People, when they're passionate, they get very verbal, very excitable, and, and want to get their message across. And the, the, the thing that people need to realize, I mean, I'm not a psychologist. I, I just play one with my friends. But um, you, you get your point across, I think, in a, in a much better way, in a much more significant way, if you give that message in a more subdued way. Yelling is not going to get you anywhere. Yeah, Tristan. Well, Kelly, and Kelly, I see you nodding your head as well. What do you think? Well, can you guys tell me what the hecklers were even heckling about last night? Because I've just I've watched on our website a couple of times, and I'm still trying to figure out exactly what it was. Uh, so I agree with Kath 100. If, if intelligent, witty, witty dialogue. If you want to, if you really want to get under the prime minister's skin, try to outfox him. That's the yeah. best way to do it. Well, and and I look at this from a perspective, and you're absolutely right, Kelly. I mean, the only thing you really understand are the expletives, which are yeah. generally bleeped out. But the hecklers don't seem to understand that you are only helping Trudeau by doing so, because he is just, he's fabulous, whether you like him or hate him. He's just fabulous at dealing with these hecklers and dealing with people who want to be disruptive. But on the flip side, though, and Greg and I were chatting about this earlier this morning, you know, what are the clips that we're playing? We're playing the clips of the hecklers. We're playing the color clips. We're playing the bleeped out ones, right? But so it's it's kind of a double-edged sword from a news perspective. Oh, it's great news. Keep heckling. But from a political perspective, if you hate Trudeau, the only thing you are doing is helping him by heckling at these town halls. To draw on Kelly's point a little bit, you know, you can have all these great Super Bowl commercials we're going to see this weekend. But how many times do they put on this great big production and it's like, well, what are they actually trying to sell me there? You don't necessarily remember the product and that could be a problem too, right, Kathy? Well, absolutely. And and the message can get lost. And, and, you know, speaking of sports, I mean, how many of us in our group of friends have seen some very heated and heckled conversations about various sports teams? See it all the time. See it around the office all the time. But a lot of times, the message and the point you're trying to make gets lost because all you hear is noise. Yeah, and so that's why I say, uh, and, and I personally would much rather, if somebody has a legitimate beef to pick with a prime minister, do it in a, in a reasonable way that you're going to put his feet to the fire. Trudeau didn't have his feet even close to the flamethrower last night. <laughs> he wouldn't do these town halls if he thought he would, so. That's a fair point, yeah. yeah. I mean, and you have to look at it from from uh, you know from a democratic 
uh, almost civil discourse perspective too. I mean, if these people are out here yelling expletives in front of hundreds of people and television cameras and whatever it is, uh, I mean, maybe they are just doing this for show, but could you imagine what it might be like trying to have a conversation with that person at a coffee table in a coffee shop somewhere? Well, and that's where we want to take it, uh, Brett. You know, conversation and discourse and friendly competition and debate amongst friends can quite often get derailed when someone kind of takes this approach in a discussion even at a coffee shop or sitting around the campfire. Yeah, I mean, I have, uh, you know, I, well, I was just out uh, with Tristan and a couple of guys who used to work here, and we like to sometimes, I mean, depending on what time of the night the conversation happens, uh, it might make, it might be less coherent. How many but- beers? <laughs> Maybe, but we still try to give everyone a turn to speak respectfully. But I have other groups of friends who, and this, you know, I don't mean to say it negatively, but there are some very alpha personalities. So in a group of five, you might have two guys who dominate the conversation because it's just yelling at each other. And I don't, I don't find that kind of conversation really conducive to anything productive because when you have two guys just fighting to, to scream the loudest, no, nothing gets solved. Nothing gets discussed. Well, and when I was in college and in university too, uh, and I took a fair number of, of uh, politics classes, uh, one of the I, I had a few people there, some friends of mine who were, uh, you know, socialists or anarchists. Like they were the complete opposite end of the political spectrum for where I would find myself. And yet I loved debating and discussing with them. Not because of their viewpoints and from where they come from, because it was always a respectful debate and was fascinating picking other people's brains. And, you know, there were some people who I tend to agree with that I just couldn't stand. Kelly just, uh, not Kelly Moore, unless you're texting from across here, just got a text message from Kelly who says, since these hecklers seem to play into Trudeau's strengths, I wonder... If they're planted yeah. in the audience. Uh, Brett, we were talking about that in the newsroom this yeah. morning. I surmised. I wonder if this guy's a plant because it just seems too, it just seemed too good, right? Oh, boo. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> Send us your text messages at 204-780-6868. Thanks to TFJ, KK, Kelly Moore, Jeff Braun. What did you do, Ray? It's the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. We want to talk about something rather important on 680 CJOB. It's a new heart and stroke report, which has uncovered how inequities and biases have resulted in a system that is ill-equipped to diagnose, treat, and support women when it comes to heart attacks. Christine Hood is here. She's Director of Government Relations and Health Promotions, and uh, she joins us in studio this morning. Christine, uh, good morning. Lovely to see you, and we appreciate time uh, with you, as always. Uh, This, I would say this topic, this study highlights something whose, I'm hoping, time has come, a realization that there needs to be more resources dedicated to treating, researching, and promoting women's heart health. Well, good morning, and you're absolutely right. The focus of the 2018 Heart and Stroke Report this year is on women's heart health because we know that we are decades behind in understanding the differences between men's and women's hearts. And we know that every 20 minutes, a woman in Canada dies from heart disease. And despite recent progress, heart disease continues to be the number one cause of premature death for women. Yet very few women know this and continue to think that other diseases are more dangerous to them. So we need to do something about this. Well, that's what surprised me about this, that that this is five times more likely uh, to kill a woman than than breast cancer. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I always associated heart problems with men because, you know, guys tend to be, you know, and I don't mean, mean to, to add levity to this, but guys tend to not take care of themselves as well as women. So I did not, I never really thought heart problems and women went hand in hand like this. And you're absolutely right. And many women do not recognize that this is their, their number one risk for premature death. And the approach of the report really looks at this a little bit more deeply. We look at what we call the unders, recognizing that women are under-researched, they're under-diagnosed and under-treated, they're under-aware of their risk, which is what you were talking about, and they're under-supported with their heart disease. So you can see there's many layers to this. And it really stems from that whole under-research piece. We're really behind here. And that under-awareness translates also into the under-awareness of what constitutes the symptoms of a heart attack because they present very differently in women, not always, but can, I think we should say, prevent very differently in women than they do in men, Christine. 
You're absolutely right. And when we talk about being underdiagnosed and undertreated, it really stems from exactly what you're talking about. That presentation can look very different. Um, if a woman presents with what we call the, the Hollywood heart attack or the big crushing chest pain elephant on the chest, um, that's generally recognized. But as you said, more often than not, women do not present like that. They might describe their pain differently. They might experience their pain differently. And it's not recognized as quickly. And when it's not recognized with that urgency, sometimes we see delays in, 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 in recognition, delays in treatment, etc. Could the fact that, I mean, and typically women uh, respond to pain better than men, right? They, you know, that's the, the notion that women are tougher than guys. And could it be that maybe if they feel the pain, they might not respond to it because they're just trying to be strong and, and ignore whatever the symptom is? There could be part of that for sure. I think it, it's, it's felt differently, but it's also part of our nature, unfortunately, to kind of put others first sometimes. We're, we're the caregivers and, and we're always worried about the well-being of others. And sometimes we, uh, to a fault, where we don't put ourselves first. So we may not recognize that that's, that's something we need to take action on. And we may not pursue the attention that it, that it needs. So certainly I would agree with you on that. So what's the benefit to highlighting this and, and what do you hope to come out of this report? And I mentioned hopefully this is an issue whose time has come. We were speaking off air and Christine, you know uh, the work that, that has been done at St. Boniface Hospital, at the Research Centre over the years. And there have been different initiatives over the time I've been associated with the foundation and the hospital to highlight women's heart health going on almost a decade, and now it's finally in the national spotlight. What are you hoping will come out of this? Well, I think you're right. There's a lot of people that are, are really passionate about this, and I think this report really brings to light um, not only what the issue is, but but a call to action of how we all need to band together. So I think there's a role, certainly for, for, for all of us, for, for researchers, for funders, for health professionals, um, for organizations like Heart and Stroke, for example. We are digging in with uh, a major federal research investment and really trying to leverage that to ensure that we can maximize the impact of that investment and really get this ball rolling to, to allow us to catch up. Now, we need to take a break and take a look at traffic and weather on the other side, though. I think a lot of people will be surprised to learn, and maybe they just caught it, that there is a difference between our hearts, not only... <laughs> The way we present or men and women may present in terms of heart attack, but also the research that has been done over years has been concentrated on men. And maybe we can talk about why that's problematic as we head into 2018 and head towards the future and why we might have to redo some of this research and keep females and, and women in mind because it's slightly different, right? It's slightly different. Christine Hood, Director of Government Relations and Health Promotion. She's in studio. We're talking about a heart and stroke a study released this morning, and it's focusing on women's heart health. And Christine, we may have alluded to, you know, what a men's or that hard Hollywood heart attack looks like, but I want to make sure that we get out there what women should be looking for, something that we would might describe in retrospect as surprising signs of a heart attack. That's right. Well, pain continues to be the number one um, sign of a heart attack, but you're right. Women can, can describe that a little bit differently and experience um, other, other signs as well. So there can be non-pain signs such as nausea, sudden fatigue, or shortness of breath. Those are more commonly reported with women. Sometimes lightheadedness can happen and, of course, sweating. So those are all some signs that can indicate that we need to seek attention. I know we're going to speak to uh, someone who went through this as well that dealt with a, a, a severe bout of indigestion or what she thought was indigestion. I know when my grandmother went through that about eight, nine years ago, that was the symptom she was dealing with and really passed it off. Yes, that heartburn. And sometimes that's simply dismissed, as you said, and uh, we have to pay attention to that. Now, two-thirds of heart disease clinical research still focuses on men. Why are we not researching women? Why have we not researched women more? Well, we talk about women being under-researched, and you're absolutely right. And, and the history of that is really that for decades, um, health research really has focused on women and women, or, or sorry, has focused on men and women were not included in those trials. And there was good reason for that. There were safety concerns about pregnancy or potential pregnancy, et cetera. So there was changes in the late 90s that occurred to allow more inclusion from women. 
um, but we still haven't seen that level rise. So like you said, two-thirds of clinical heart disease research still focuses on women, so we still have room to move. And part of that is just that belief that a heart is a heart, right? And and there, there was no reason, there was no research that would indicate that a man's heart or a woman's heart might react differently or or do different things to the physiology of a body uh, in in stressful conditions in a cardiac event. That's right. And, and we know that there are some differences. I mean, certainly women's hearts are somewhat smaller and their arteries are smaller. Um, plaque builds up differently. Um, we see more coronary artery disease in men in their larger arteries and women more in their small vessels. So there are some some significant differences. And I see that women are more likely than men to die or have a second heart attack within the first six months of a cardiac event. So does that mean that like, are women not getting enough support in uh, relation to cardiac rehab? Well, one of the unders is undersupported. You're absolutely right. And when it comes to post-cardiac, we know that a cardiac rehab program is really the gold standard. And we also know that women are only half as likely as men to attend and complete their cardiac rehab program. So that is Do we know why concerning. that is, Christine? Not to interrupt you, but that that's, once again, another startling number out of this report. We have a we have a good referral process here in in Manitoba. So I mean, sometimes in some areas there's lower referrals. Sometimes I think there's concerns about balancing work and balancing responsibilities. We have an example of um, one of the one of the women in the report who talks about when she had her heart attack at the age of 51, she felt selfish thinking about taking on cardiac rehab because she thought, this is something just for me. I shouldn't be doing that. And eventually realized that, you know what, it would be more selfish if I didn't do this because I won't be good to anybody else. Well, Christine, uh, we appreciate the visit. And uh, to giving giving us some information on this uh, report, once again, heart and stroke report, saying heart disease in women is underdiagnosed, undertreated, and under-researched. Christine Hood is the Director of Government Relations and Health Promotion with Heart and Stroke Manitoba. Thank you so much for the access. Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry with you. That song, that sounder means it is time for our small town salute. Hey, Jeff, we did the small town salute to Altona last week. Right on. Going to Winkler this week. Whoa. What? (laughs) That's what you call an emotional roller coaster (laughs) there. There's a really big event happening in the city of Winkler starting yesterday. And indeed, it is the 2018 Viterra Men's Curling Championship to determine the Manitoba Men's Champ, who will go on to the Briar. And we are joined by the chair of the 2018 Viterra Championship, Louis Tangay, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Louis, did we say your name correctly? It's Louis. You hit it right on the nose. Right on. I went to school with a guy named Louis uh, with your same spelling as your name, so that's why I kind of had a just a hint that that's what was happening. So uh, this is in Winkler now. I realize we're kind of breaking the rules because Winkler, as Jeff Braun pointed out to us uh, when he was uh, sad to hear that we were going to Winkler, he said, well, you can't, it's not a small town. It's a city. Uh, but we did Eltona we last were, week. We were a small town at one time. So what is the population of Winkler for those who are unfamiliar with your community? We're about 12,000 people. What does it take to qualify as a city? 10,000? 7,500, okay. I believe. Oh, look at that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, We'll talk about the, the the curling as well, but briefly in a moment. But Winkler, where is it on a map? If I'm coming from Winnipeg, if you're coming from Winnipeg, you'll be driving south on 75, and then turn off uh, probably about oh, it's about 40 minutes out of Winnipeg, uh, south on the perimeter, at uh, from Saint Norbert, and then you would hang a right and go west about another 20 minutes and. You would be in Winkler, Manitoba. So the provincial women's uh, championships were held in Killarney a couple of weeks ago. Now in Winkler, talk about the facility that you'll be hosting uh, this championship at, and uh, the number of volunteers involved, because that's a common thread and a common theme with events like this. They do not go off without generous support and obligations from volunteers, Louis. It is both both in uh, time and money for the business community. So uh, we uh, we are using the Winkler Centennial Arena. Uh, Centennial, obviously, built in 1967, so we refer to it many times as the old barn. Um, standard old tile, bench seating, and uh, but a great arena, good uh, good sight lines, everything. Um, we took the uh, uh, the glass down, we rolled up the netting, uh, 
like I said, not a bad seat in the house. Uh, holds about 1,200 to maybe 1,300 people when at capacity. Uh, it took us about uh, two to three days to transform it from the hockey arena into a curling facility. And, uh, and then uh, we converted our uh, curling club uh, into a, a saloon, the original 16 saloon. Built a little bit of a causeway in between the two so people finish watching curling. They don't even have to put their jacket on go outside. They can go straight across over to the saloon. And, uh, yeah, that's, that took a couple of days, and, uh, and here we are. And then as far as the volunteers, well, uh, we had 307 volunteers in 20, uh, 2015 when we hosted the Scotty Tournament Hearts, and uh, we thought we would need maybe slightly less than that uh, to do this one because there's a few things we modified from our template from 2015, and lo and behold, uh, we ended up with more volunteers, uh, just over 330 volunteers. So, again, small town, I, I, I love you to your segment at the beginning with John Cougar Mellencamp is uh, it basically says you're born in a small town and, and that's what we are. We born in a small town, although we're now a city, um, you know, we still small town approach to many things and I think it served us well. Now, as far as this event, which is a high profile event in Manitoba sports, uh, what does it mean for the community or what sort of an influx or maybe a shot in the arm does it give Winkler? Um, you know, I guess from a, it's a, maybe a profile perspective because um, you know, a lot of larger events are usually held in larger centers. So you get the Portage and maybe Brandon and Winnipeg. Um, so for us, it's important that uh, man, the rest of Manitoba knows that Winkler can host something like this. We, we've, we did it in 2014 when we co-hosted with Morden for the Manitoba Games and then in 15 with the Scotties. Um, it's just one more thing. Uh, we, we, we like to have a, a higher profile. We could be Maybe we'd like to have more more uh, events come to Winkler, and so if you're able to host one and do it successfully, it, it opens the door for possible uh, future events that uh, that we maybe couldn't host before, but now we've proven that we can do it. So I, I guess it just opens the door for future uh, possibilities. Louis, your part of Manitoba has been one of the fastest growing regions of the of the country, never mind the province. Why are so many people moving to communities like Altona, like Morden, and like Winkler? Well, you know, I think in part it's um, it's an entrepreneurial spirit. Um, it's amazing. I, I've lived here for about twenty, just under twenty years now, and uh, some of the stuff I see, I just I shake my head and I go, "Oh, I never kind of thought you could, you know, do that." And and until so people are are pretty. Uh, uh, entrepreneurial in spirit, and so it's, it's not a it's not a um, can't do attitude. It's a can do. What can we do as opposed to what we can't do? And I think in in our case, it's, it, it applies to all southern Manitoba, but I mean, uh, Morden, Winkler, and Altona. Um, but I think the the um, the logo for Winkler kind of says it all, um, which is basically yes, Winkler. And so that's yes to business, yes to doing things, yes to having more people come, yes to immigration. And so, you know, I think, I think that kind of just sums it up in two words. Yes, Winkler. Now, Louis, uh, I have an important question to ask Ooh. you about Winkler. Sure. Do you have a golf course? Oh, we do. Winkler Centennial Golf Course. Guess, can you guess when it was built? Uh, 100 years ago? <laughs> 1967? <laughs> so, yes, it's an 18-hole golf course. It uh, originally was a nine-hole converted into an 18, and... Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. We're, we're, we're uh, undertaking, again, back to yes, Winkler, we're undertaking to do some changes, uh, building a, a new clubhouse, uh, changing some of the holes around for the layout. Um, but uh, uh, we haven't got the, um, the natural landscape that maybe a, a, a Morden golf course has, maybe Carmen, but uh, it's a pretty darn good golf course, very challenging. Certainly for me it is, anyway. Well, Louis, uh, uh, you know, I find your comments very refreshing because when we talk about Altona, they, they're they very resentful almost of, of Winkler and Morden and, and Carmen. And, and we've always bugged Jeff Braun around here that Winkler probably doesn't even acknowledge the fact that there's a rivalry. And, and so when you're the top dog in the area, it's, it's easy to throw out the accolades to those other communities. Is the rivalry between those communities a, a real thing? Or are we, uh, uh, I mean, we love to play it up around here, but is it a real deal? Yeah, it, it is. You know, and it, that's interesting because uh, I'm not originally from this area, but, but I did live here back in 1985, and I coached uh, some bantam hockey, and there was a rivalry. It was it was pretty bitter in that time with Altona and with Morton. Uh, but I think over the years, and I guess that's, um, I can always say the progress part of it, 
Uh, over the years, you, you come to rely on your neighbors. Oh, you always rely on your neighbors, but you come to rely on them a little bit more. And, and just the way that uh, uh, it's been you know, progressing over a number of years, um, regionally, I almost have to think regionally. And yes, you know, somebody, you know, if you get a, a new business comes to Southern Manitoba, it's got to be located somewhere. Uh, but, you know, the question becomes what are your facilities like, uh, what kind of infrastructure you have. But in the end, um, you know, we have, we have people coming from Altoona to work in Winker. We have people from Winker going to work in Borden. Um, it's, it's kind of, you know, just a, a, a big area that, that supports itself. And as I said, the more, the more that Altoona and Morden succeeds and the more that Winker succeeds. And so it, it, just, a spin, it, just, keeps, it just keeps multiplying itself. And that turns into more immigration, more people moving here. So the rivalry uh, was certainly there years ago. But I think that that regional thinking now, and even in sports, regional, uh, you know, there were regional hockey teams. And so, you know, you, you, someone who used to say, oh, I, did, I didn't like that guy, that doesn't happen anymore because, you know, your kids are playing together on a hockey team and, you know, the kids from Winkler and your kids from, or their, their kids from Morden, or your kids from Winkler, and uh, you, you sit down and have a cup of coffee and you figure out, you know, that, that guy's not that bad a guy. <laughs> and so you, you move on, right? And life's too short, so. All right, Louis Tenge. Hey, we got a roll, but thank you so much for joining us this morning uh, to talk. Uh, tell us about Winkler. We appreciate the time. Now, thank you very much. Always like to toot the horn. Okay, Louis Tenge, chair of the 2018 Viatera Men's Curling Championship in Winkler, Manitoba. It's the small town salute. Winkler, technically a city, but we did Altona last week, so we figured we would do Winkler this week. Small town salute, by the way, is for South Beach Casino, southbeachcasino.ca. Now we have a Global News exclusive story. CBSA officers finding more fentanyl in packages trying to come into Canada and Manitoba. And we are joined by Global News reporter Zara Premji with more on this. Good morning, Zara. Good morning. So So what can you tell us about this? Well, we got a behind-the-scenes look at the CBSA packages facility. There's a few of them hidden down in throughout uh, Winnipeg, but one of the ones we went to, they said that the landscape has changed in Winnipeg, in Canada. CBSA officers have really had to evolve how they handle packages. We're all well aware of fentanyl and meth hitting our streets, not just our streets, but all the streets of Canadian uh, cities, provinces. It's a big situation that many of us have been speaking about. But what we don't realize is where is this coming from? How is it making its way to our streets? So I spoke to Jaron Peters, who is the chief of operations with CBSA, and what she explained to me is that actually people are getting really creative. When smugglers are trying to get those drugs, those opioids, onto our streets, they're actually using very creative methods. One of the examples she actually gave me is uh, someone had claimed on their box, you know, a package coming through to CBSA. It had come in from China, and on the box, the description was that it was a crochet piece. So if you will, maybe your grandma made you a sweater. So that's what it was described as. Something just didn't seem right to them. So they opened that up. They opened the crochet and they found opioids hidden inside. Another example was someone claimed that it was cutlery. It was actually 33 knives that were trying to make their way across into Manitoba. So these are really scary situations that CBSA has explained to us. They've had to evolve their practices in order to adapt to these very creative smugglers. Now, never mind the fact that they're looking for these drugs and the fact that these drugs are being masked in a very creative fashion. This has to be creating workplace issues, health and safety issues for CBSA employees. Definitely. I mean, that is the main point of the story that we want to talk about the fact that they have had to adapt big time. They never thought when they first started their jobs that they would be having to carry naloxone kits where they're working. Now, naloxone kits are there in case someone is trying to transfer fentanyl, which they have seen. So they said they keep the naloxone kits on site. The minute they perhaps see a powder on the box or they put it through the scanner and something just seems wrong, they have to make sure they have the naloxone kit nearby. They have to get the full gear on so that if they are handling this package and it potentially has that potentially fatal drug inside, they have the ways of dealing with it. That you, I, We've spoken about this a lot where two really small salt-sized grains of fentanyl, if you touch that, that has the potential of killing you. So now imagine, I don't think they signed up for that when they realized they were going to be dealing with packages coming across the border. You know, just last year, they actually had to deal with 86 narcotic seizures 
they're expecting that number to go up as people get more creative with the ways they're sending their packages and the ways they're sending drugs across the border. Zara Premji, is there more information on this or will there soon be more information on this at uh, globalnews.ca and cjob.com? Yes, definitely. And you can also, if you're bored and you want to watch some morning news, we'll be uh, having a little bit more on 820 today with uh, Shannon Kuzis on Global News Morning. Zara Premji, thank you very much. Zara Premji from Global News joining us with an exclusive story. Canadian border officers finding more fentanyl in packages trying to come in to Canada and Manitoba. It is time to go back to the Del Navert Museum. There is a lecture series that we want to tell you about, and our guest in studio is the Director of Programming and Marketing for the Del Navert Museum, Charlene Van Buchenhout. Charlene, welcome back to 680 CJOB. Oh, thank you for having me back. It's my pleasure. It's usually my opportunity to welcome the listeners back, <laughs> but Brett always jumps in when the difficult names come in, and, and your name is difficult enough, and Del Navert, <laughs> uh, we've had this discussion before, but for those that tuning in. I thought it was down the uh, And a lot of people want to put that French accent on it. Maybe you can explain why it's down the vert. Okay. Well, down the vert museum um, on 61 Carlton Street is uh, was the home of Sir Hugh John MacDonald. He's the son of our first Canadian prime minister. It was built in 1895 and it was, MacDonald um, is a Scottish name. And uh, down the vert is a Scottish word as well. It means um, home or hamlet. So we had you in uh, over the fall to talk about some Halloween stuff. You had you in to talk about what you're doing over the Christmas holidays. And now it's uh, exploring Victorian's winter and spring Sunday lecture series. So tell us about this series of lectures you've got. Okay, great. We're very excited. Um, it's the first time we've had kind of a six-pack series. Um, it's all-encompassing, exploring Victorian era. So the first one we have up is about fortune-telling and uh, the Victorians. So the Victorians were very interested in... Um, um, supernatural things and spiritualism. And so um, fortune telling falls right into that category. And we have Inez Bonacasa uh, coming to explain all of the different uh, things that they created to help um, foretell the future. Now, would they have to do this in secret to be fascinated? Would you speak open it, openly about your fascination? Because, uh, you know, are, are we late enough? Are we... Uh, past the Salem witch trials and that era <laughs> yeah. so that we can actually have this conversation openly? Or was it sort of a secret society thing? I think in certain crowds, you could speak openly about it. People knew enough. Um, it was a, a time of great invention. And so I think people uh, felt more comfortable speaking more openly about things they didn't understand. Um, so this is really exciting. Uh, we're going to be delving into uh, fortune telling dolls, like different dolls. Yep, that was very interesting. I didn't know about this. Um, tarot cards and um, even like bridal super superstitions and how to tell if you could find a husband or not. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> how did the cards tell you that? Oh, uh, I mean, that was kind of one of the biggest reasons to get into fortune telling would be uh, to try to find a husband, try to find husband, love, money, and, you know, if to uh, portend death. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so this yeah. fascination with, uh, you know, somebody trying to give you a hint as to what was coming. We've been fascinated with this for a very long Ever, time. Yeah, clearly. I, think, I think for a really long time. So we're going to figure out um, what the Victorians did, uh, what they invented, the dolls, um, to help foretell the future. Now, right now, uh, nostalgia, as it pertains to pop culture, uh, it's a, well, it's been big for the last decade, 80s pop nostalgia, now 90s nostalgia. Has there always been sort of a nostalgia for the Victorian era, or are you seeing more of I it? I think so. Um, no, I think it's always been there. Um, I feel like I've seen, I'm seeing more of it just because I work at the museum. Um, but I think it's always been an underlying fascination for people. The Victorian era was a great uh, time of change. And so we have lots of things coming out of there. You know, we have um, forensics and we have um, the spiritualism movement and um, all of these things uh, like the telephone and the radio and all these all these inventions, um, stuff in medicine that come out of the Victorian era because of all the change. And I think that's uh, where the fascination lies with people. Well, and I mean, mm -hmm. in terms of our own history here in Winnipeg, yeah, things are going pretty well economically right now and we're seeing a building boom, but the Victorian era was kind of the birthplace of the great things that really helped establish the city of Winnipeg in the first place. That's right. And um, to that end, in one of our uh, lectures a little bit later on in March, um, we'll be, uh, we have Linda McDowell coming to talk about um, some of the great um, Manitoba women that uh, um, 
that aren't Nellie McClung. Um, that kind of made a lot of change in Winnipeg uh, for women, um, ones who became the first lawyers and doctors and um, strong indig- Indigenous women as well. So she'll be talking about that in March. Um, but we have we have quite the uh, eclectic um, group of lectures. So um, apart from the fortune-telling one, we have um, one about Victorian makeup and cosmetics and what uh, women used to put on their face um, and what com- companies keep are still making products today minus the lead. So, yeah. so they're making the same kind of stuff that they were making back then, but they've had to yeah, just minus certain ingredients. Updated their yeah, ingredient yeah, list. Yeah, lead's not good in <laughs> anything. Good. I can't imagine putting it on your face. Arsenic but too. I, I think we've had that conversation with Shanley Vidal, that whole idea that she is invested in some makeup that's really from natural and and uh, basic ingredients, right? Mm-hmm. Not over-chemicalized, et cetera. Yeah. So what about Valentine's Day? I mean, I think if at its heart, Valentine's Day might have been born and, and raised in the Victorian era. Oh, yeah. Um, we've got some, we've got a Cupid uh, workshop coming up for card making, um, just like you used to do in elementary school. But yes. also uh, cards were kind of a Victorian thing as well. Um, greeting f- cards? Greeting cards, really? yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the first Christmas cards ever was uh, Queen Victoria herself, um, a picture of their family at Christmas. And uh, that was really started the big, like, let's send cards to everybody and, like, hand make them. They have so, shares in yeah. Hallmark to this day as a royal family, <laughs> yeah, I believe. Sure. <laughs> so we've got a card-making workshop on the 10th, and so you can make up all of your van- Valentine's cards, and it's free. It's a drop-in, uh, 1.30 to f- uh, one, 1 to 4 or something like that, um, just in the afternoon at the museum. And then in the evening, uh, we've got Moonstruck. It's not. It's, uh, it's a film with Cher and, and Nicolas Cage, but uh, it's not Victorian. Is that, um, some, is that part of Shanley Fest? It's part of Shanley Fest, yeah. So, I was going to say, how did we mention Moonstruck <laughs> twice in one week? Now I know why. No, it's good. It's great. <laughs> we love the symmetry and the synergies between the, the different arts organizations in yeah. town, right? Because uh, it, it shows that you're working together and, and aware of what one another are doing. And, you know, I've asked you off the air, but I'll ask you on these conversations that we have. You know, we always wonder if they strike a chord with our listeners. Are you are you hearing from our listeners and saying, hey, I heard you on CGOB and that's why I'm here to visit you today or reaching out? Yeah, your listeners are great. We always get phone calls after I come to do an interview and um, I always get comments. I heard you on the radio, which is great. It's great feedback to get because I like to know that we're reaching out. What number should people call if they want to find out more information more information uh you can call 204-943-2835 and the website is downthevertmuseum.ca you can find them on facebook instagram and twitter charlene van buchenhout is the director of programming and marketing for the downthevert museum exploring victorians winter and spring sunday lecture series charlene thanks for coming back thank you so much it is a big day tomorrow. I want to say hello as well to our friends on Facebook Live on the 680 CJOB Facebook page. And we want to say hello to our friend Sheila Smith from the Prairie Wildlife Rehabilitation Center because Sheila has brought a special guest with her, a cute little woodchuck named Wynn. Is it a, is it a groundhog or a woodchuck? They're actually the same. Oh, okay. Well, Wynn is adorable. She's so dainty. And if you want to see her, you can go to Facebook Live, 680CJOB. Greg, I believe, has just tweeted a picture out. Yeah, GMAC, uh, WPG, GMAC Winnipeg on Twitter. And you can follow me on Instagram. Just look for Brett McGarry on Instagram and you'll find uh, my the post in my story as well, a picture and a video. So... Groundhog Day. Is this going to, this is Wynn's second? Yeah, this will be her second year. Okay. And uh, what happened last year? How did it go last year? Uh, yeah, last year she predicted a longer winter. Oh. And uh, I believe we did get six extra long weeks of winter. <laughs> I'm just going to move your microphone a little bit, Sheila. I know you're in a little bit of an awkward position. You're holding Wynn like a little baby. How old is Wynn and how did she happen to find herself and find her way to the Prairie Wildlife Rehabilitation Center? Uh, Wynn will be turning two. Um, So in the year of May 2016, 
um, the center got a call from the fire station um, that they found a, a small animal on their uh, driveway. So uh, we went out to investigate, and sure enough, there was a baby groundhog. Um, she was bald, eyes closed, um, very small, lethargic looking. Um, we did some, uh, asked some questions, and we found out that the neighbor was actually trapping in the neighborhood. So she was actually a true orphan. Um, she came out of her den um, looking for food. Um, the fire department stayed in contact with us, and, um, you know, if they would find any other babies, they would contact us. But unfortunately, she was the only survive. Well, she must have had other siblings, but we never found them. How big is a, is a litter typically? And um, they can be anywhere from four to eight. Um, so she came, really wants to talk. Uh, Wynn actually knows that there's almonds on the table. Almonds. Are those her favorites? <laughs> well, we just... Uh, because she goes to schools, we're trying different um, things to bring. Right. Because um, we don't want to bring peanuts and have a, a reaction for the kids. Oh, so good point. we're always looking for something that she can chew, that the kids can watch her. Um, so almonds right now is her favorite, as well as strawberries and broccoli. Now, the way that you've got her tucked in right now, it kind of reminds me of a. Do you remember a toy called Popples? Um, it's a, where the one where they, they're kind of like, sorry, that's my video. I'm just adding another video to my Instagram feed. But, uh, yeah, it was a worry you, you could roll them up in a ball and then sort of unfold them as their head pops out. Uh, anyway, look, just look up popples and you'll, you'll see yes. what I mean. But, yes, we have those around my house. But she's the way you've got her wrapped up in this cute little blanket and she pokes her head out to eat the almonds and strawberries that you feed her. And what I'm really surprised with, she's so dainty with the way that she eats the strawberry, uh, I, I was, would have expected, maybe I'm just used to my sister's dog who devours food like uh, like a vacuum cleaner. Uh, yeah, they, uh, woodchucks hold their food very nicely when they're eating, um, as you will see shortly. Her, now I see, are those sharp claws on her yes, paws? Yes, um, actually groundhogs can climb trees. Okay. And they're awesome diggers. Um, that's pretty much what they are. They just dig everywhere. Um, there's other names for them. Um, people do call them whistle pigs. Um, they have a very loud alarm system. So they'll screw, it's like a really piercing alarm. And it's to indicate to the whole clan, like all the groundhogs around if there's a trouble or danger. So they'll alarm everybody. That's what a whistle pig is. Yes, this uh, is a whistle pig. I know that the, uh, the whistle pig has the burger stand formerly Half Moon in Transcona That's on Bay right. Street. Absolutely. <laughs> now, when I look at when I can't help but think of a uh, prairie dog because she's her facial features and her eyes are very engaging, and the whole idea of of spreading news with the high pitched squeal, right? When you go to the when you well, go to the related. zoo and they've got the the prairie dog yeah. exhibit, uh, very reminiscent for me. Yeah, they're related. She's uh, way larger than they are. Sure. Um, but, yeah, so you do find them in Winnipeg. Um, uh, they're everywhere. Um, their favorite spot is, like, the tree line, like, um, bush prior to tree line. Um, they like digging in there. Um, like I said, they do climb trees. Uh, so they're very I've never seen one in the wild. Are they nocturnal? Like, what, what's, um, what are they their... do come out during the day, um, but... She knows that there's more almonds. <laughs> she's like gonna go. She find just had them. to put. Uh, she tucked Wynn back into the popple bag. Oh, she's. Oh well, apparently she wants to come and say hi. She to wants everybody. to be on camera. It's very nice and warm in here. <laughs> Nothing like outside. Sheila Smith is our guest. She is with the Prairie Wildlife Rehabilitation Center. She has brought with her Win the Woodchuck, Win the Groundhog. It's Groundhog Day tomorrow. So we'll learn. We're going to check our forecast. Uh, in the meantime, you can check our Facebook page, doing Facebook Live with Win. And after we uh, continue our con when we continue our conversation, we'll find out more about what the Prairie Wildlife Rehabilitation Center does. And. Uh, how when, How long is Wynn going to be with the Prairie Wildlife Rehabilitation Center? Their website, by the way, pwildlife.ca. Sheila Smith is here. She uh, has not come alone. She has Wynn the Groundhog with her. She's from the, well, they are from the Prairie Wildlife Rehabilitation Center. We found out how Wynn came to come into your family, so to speak, Sheila. How long will Wynn be with you, or is this a permanent this addition is a to permanent, the family? She will stay with us until the day she passes. 
Well, uh, and what is the life expectancy of a, an animal like when? The longest is approximately six years. Six years. Yeah. Oh, well, you said that with trepidation. My heart kind of broke when you said that, too. No, Sheila, and if we could get you to come a bit closer to the mic, if you can, um, <laughs> because we realize you've got a Sheila, for those who are not watching on Facebook Live right now, is cradling Win the woodchuck uh, in her, on her lap. But why would, does Win have to stay with you for the duration of her life? Um, she's too used to humans, um, and she was raised by humans, so we didn't real, we can't really show her what to do her natural behavior in the wild so um she'll stay with us for the remainder of her life now prairie wildlife center you often do release animals back into the wild well the year we got her we had a mother and eight babies come in um and we tried to emulate win in that family unfortunately it didn't work um they rejected her so uh, she lost the opportunity to go back with uh, siblings and a, a mother. Um, but that family, all those babies were le- released back into the wild. Um, so, you know, out of nine babies, we only had one have to stay into in captivity. So I think we did really good that year. Now, uh, we have somebody who's texting us asking if Wynn needs more sleep sacks or anything made uh, for a possible longer winter of snuggling, as they've put it. <laughs> um, actually, on our website, uh, we will be putting the measurements of this. Um, and if people want to make it, feel free. Um, we uh, do have uh, a squirrel as well as an education ambassador that would love this as well. pwildlife.ca is the website. Since when the woodchuck is too used to humans, is she affectionate at all? Um, I wouldn't say affectionate. Um, she will come for food. She's not an animal. None of our wildlife is for petting or we don't treat them like pets. Um, they all have a purpose in our center. Um, people don't have the opportunity to see these animals up close. Um, we try to get a connection to have more people interested in wildlife and uh, try to protect nature, um, whether it's the, um, the habitat or the animals themselves. So are they... Uh, not, I asked you if they were nocturnal, but do they hibernate? And why this? Why are they tied to this tradition of Groundhog Day and, and February 2nd uh, in particular? Do we know? Uh, yeah, groundhogs are true hibernators. Um, they sleep all winter long in their dens. Um, so she has, uh, in, in the ground, they have the, their own washroom and bedrooms. It's a, a nice little house they have there. They Hold on. They have a separate area to go to the bathroom? Yes, they do. Wow. Pre- pretty smart creatures. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, it, it's just, the, uh, I think all animals wouldn't want to sleep in their fecal. So, no, of course. Yeah, so it's, they're very intelligent. They, they have long nails for digging. Um, a lot of people don't know, but groundhogs do climb trees. Um, when predators are around, they can climb to escape. So, But what about in terms of the Groundhog Day? You were mentioning on Facebook Live, but I don't think it hit the airwaves that they, they tend to do something around this time of year. Um, people have seen uh, groundhogs poke their head out in February. Um, it's known to be males looking for a female. Um, so they poke their heads, getting an idea where the females are, and then they would go back into their den to have another little nap. Come March, they would pop out and go straight to where they believe the females would be and have a girlfriend. So tomorrow, <laughs> then, when will the uh, the ceremony take place? So for, tomorrow uh, we'll be at Fort White Alive. Um, it opens at 9 o'clock, and our prediction will be taking place at 930. Um, people, public can come. I believe there are restaurants open, so you can have a, a nice coffee or breakfast. And then between 12 and 4, we'll be at the Manitoba Children's Museum where you can come and wish Win a happy uh, Groundhog's Day. Um, she'll have one of her other education ambassador friends there. Okay. Well, Sheila, thank you so much for this. Sheila Smith is with the Prairie Wildlife Rehabilitation Center. Again, the website is pwildlife.ca. We've been speaking with Sheila and Win the Groundhog. And thanks to everyone who joined us on Facebook Live on the 680 CJOB Facebook page. That's all the time we have. Thanks to Behind the Glass, Jerry for being our technical producer, for Tristan Field-Jones and for Shanalee Vidal as content producer. I'm Brett McGarry with Greg Mackling. Thank you for listening to 680 CJOB. Na, 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 na.